Good morning, all you food lovers around the world. You're listening to On the Menu with Anne and Peter Haig. And today we're going to present you with two wonderful, successful, brilliant, talented women in the culinary industry. Um, starting off with Asia Ibrahim, uh, whose background is um, so extraordinary. She'll tell you about that. Um, she is the first female and first woman of color to head the kitchen at the very famous, really well-regarded uh, fine dining restaurant uh, in Seattle called Canlos. Um, and she'll tell you about some of her plans of how to, uh, to, to reshape some of the activities of the restaurant or redirect them. Uh, let's listen to Asia. I'm so excited to be talking to Asha Ibrahim. Is that the correct pronunciation, Asha? Uh, Asha Ibrahim, yes. Okay. Anyhow, um, I said to you, you're really hot stuff right now. Everybody's talking about you. Um, you you've just been, uh, I guess you started beginning of July as the, uh, the head chef, executive chef of uh, Canlis in Seattle, which is... Um, a fine dining icon, uh, but one that has a uh, an, an old ring to it <laughs> in terms of a bastion of male chefs. Uh, you were the first woman to head the kitchen and also the first woman of color to head the kitchen. And you have grand plans, but... I'm so excited for you. I, I have to tell you that I haven't been to Canvas for a while, but uh, at the start of the pandemic, I, I interviewed Mark, and I was, I mean, Canvas turned out to be, a, 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 I don't know what, I mean, just a, a forefront leader in this, this pivoting to from a fine dining restaurant to selling hamburgers through a drive-through window. And so I was thinking that this just is a continuation of smart thinking, uh, nimbleness, and also f- looking at the future of food. So back to you. Um, <laughs> everybody's so excited, as I said, to see what you're going to do there. But you've, done, you've had the most interesting backgrounds. I'm just amazed. A lot of, the, of your um, former, um, uh, what do you say, uh, physicians, um, we've interviewed the people there um, from the, the restaurants where you worked, and you have the, absolutely the most diverse experience. Can you tell us briefly a little bit about uh, starting in, you were born in the Philippines. Did you do anything about food in the Philippines? Yeah, I was born in the Philippines and immigrated to the U.S. at the age of six in 1992. Um as far as uh, food in the Philippines, you know, my exposure growing up to, to food, um, to good food, was that I was lucky enough to have both parents of mine um, cook extraordinarily at home and uh, almost every night. So <laughs> um, a lot of working parents do that. And so I was lucky enough to have delicious home-cooked meals by my mom and my dad um, growing up and as well as my grandparents when they would come to visit us. Um, yeah. Well, you know, uh, remember I told you that um, that we're friends. Uh, uh, we're friends with. Um, what am I saying? I've lost myself. Um, that we have a, a group called um, Food Four One Two Food Rescue in Pittsburgh. Mm. Um, wow. And yeah, and the, the founder and head of it is from the Philippines, and and Jamilka Borges um, has worked with them on their food program and so forth. And uh, everybody, as I said, is so excited at your position. But you, you, you took a while to get there, I and mean, you've, you've cooked everywhere. <laughs> Just mention a few of these places. Yeah, um, so I, you know, I started my cooking career um, about 15 years ago. Um, I decided, you know, while playing college basketball, uh, I think I was going into my junior year. Um, you were playing college basketball? I was playing college basketball. So my path before cooking was very different. Um, How tall actually, are you? 
I'm <laughs> not tall. <laughs> I, was, I was a point guard, um, and I played competitive basketball from the age of six. Uh, wow. I was recruited to play for many, many universities, and I chose um, an educational school in North Carolina called Elon University. And wow. um, Elon, Elon, Yeah, I had a knee injury. It's a good crossword clue. That was a good crossword puzzle word. It's a four-letter college in North Carolina. Yes. Um, it's in the apex. So I, I was actually studying communications, and um, I was looking into, you know, a communications and political science degree. And um, after my first year of college, uh, I had a knee injury, and Oh, that's right. Um, during, my, during my recovery from my knee injury, I, I began reading cookbooks and um, started cooking for my teammates. And so by the time I rolled into my next year of school, um, it had been on my mind to kind of consider that as a path for myself. And um, after sophomore year wrapped up, I kind of just made the announcement to my parents that this is, this is the path that I think I'm supposed to be on. <laughs> so that's oh, what brought great. me originally to the Bay Area. And... Um, you know, I was able to start uh, culinary school, and my first job out of culinary school was uh, a restaurant called Aqua um, by Laurent Monrique. Um, this was in 2007. Um, yeah, and just kind of getting into competitive kitchens from an early start. Um, there were a lot of parallels from basketball to cooking. It's a competitive environment. It's physically demanding. Yeah. A lot of muscle repetition, and so, you know, it, it really kind of led me down a very competitive path to cooking, and, you know, I was particularly interested in fine dining for that reason. The um, the demand, the attention to detail, and, you know, working for chefs who um, who demand a lot of you. Um, it's, it's very much like working for a solid it coach. It is hard. You know? It's hard Yes, <laughs> it is. So I, I've been able to spend time in... Um, an aqua the restaurant that's some somehow or other is associated with a swimming pool aqua um it was it is now where um the current michael mina is um and michael mina actually got his start in that kitchen so oh, yeah. um so i started at aqua and and um kind of worked my way around some iconic San Francisco restaurants early in my career. And I think I moved a little too quickly up in that ladder. And, uh, you know, I kind of, I had a head chef position at the age of 24 and it, I hated it. I hated every moment of being a leader at that age. I felt like I wasn't anywhere near being ready uh, to be oh. leading people and to have had the experience to lead, you know, properly. So after running a, a Spanish restaurant at 24. Um, yeah, and no, we thought, interviewed him, by the way. At Arthur <laughs> Mundi, you mean? Uh, no, he, he was actually after Manresa. This was a, a casual um, Spanish restaurant in San Francisco oh. that uh, has since closed. Um, I worked at that restaurant, and, um, you know, again, after running a kitchen at such a young age, I realized I kind of made myself a promise. I thought, um, I do not want to take on a management position until I've worked my way up in a kitchen. And um, and sort of two months after saying that to myself, I found myself dining at um, Ubuntu and Manresa. And yeah. both of those meals changed my life. So uh, I think after my meal at Manresa, I realized, you know, I'll do whatever it takes to get in this kitchen. This is incredible. And I want to learn how to cook like this. So he's, that's he's what brought strong. me strong. I mean, that, yeah. that was, that's kind of a... It's a good hard training for you, I would think. Um, yes. I'm wondering if you were there when we were there interviewing him once. What year was, was that? I can't remember. Peter long, long, years, long time ago. Long before the fire. Yeah, before the fire. Not long before, before the fire. fire. No, a long time long, before the fire. Long time okay. before the fire. Got it. So, I was um, there during the fire. Um, okay. Yeah, so I was there from 2012 until, well, 2010, and then came back in 2012, and then um, finished up in 2015. 
So. Now, how did you get from there to Spain? Um, so funny next story, job. we not, had a... Not exactly your next job. <laughs> <laughs> Could I... Are you, were you picking these um, experiences, the work experiences, on the basis of the reputation of the restaurant or of the chef, um, uh, the importance of it, or the, the diversity of the, uh, the process and the, the types of food? Um, I, I was looking at the entirety of each program that I was going into. So previous to Manresa, I worked at a restaurant called Comi, and um, I kind of carved a path for myself and wrote things down. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big goal setter. Um, so, you know, for example, working at Comi, um, what I had heard about James Scheibaut in Oakland is that he's a phenomenal cook. He demands a lot. Um, he's very organized, and I wanted to take that on and learn as much as possible from him. And okay. what I heard about David um, at Manresa is that he um, he doesn't he doesn't hire cooks. He hires you know kind of the next generation of chefs. And uh-huh. I, I didn't know what that meant. And so um, you know, spending some time staging in that kitchen, I, I understood very well uh, what that meant. And I had never been in a room. Um, with that many professionals and, and at such a high level. Uh-huh. So, you know, getting into that environment, um, I knew I would have to be at the top of my game to be able to kind of rise in that kitchen. And um, and then considering Azurmendi in Spain, uh, I loved what the program stands for. It's about experience. It's about sustainability. Um, and my first impression of Anaco was, working directly with him at a collaboration dinner at Manresa. And I loved his leadership style. I also really loved, yeah, um, you know, I I kind of got to meet some of these folks um, along the way just briefly. And my first, you know, interaction with Aneko, what I loved about Aneko is that he is extremely successful, but he, uh, he makes his family important for himself. And, you know, I know that that's the kind of person I kind of lean towards is that I love my work, but um, I know that eventually I'd like to have a family and I want to be a, a, a positive leader and, and I see those aspects in, in Echo's leadership. So, and have a uh, life. That's what Jimmy was saying. <laughs> yes, and his... his we, we met him when the World's 50 Best Restaurant Awards were held in Bilbao and San Sebastian. Yeah. And he had, He's incredibly he had kind. He had just opened a restaurant in the convention center. Yes. And, and, um, we, and we couldn't get we couldn't get a we couldn't get a seat at Anaco. Oh no! At the main restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> so we so we had to had to settle for second place, I guess. But he but he gave us a a fine interview and described yeah, himself in the same way as you were describing yourself. Okay. <laughs> so I can see how you would get along. He's, um, you know, during lineup when we had a collaboration dinner with him at Manresa, he kind of disappeared for five minutes. And so I, um, I wanted to make sure he was okay. I went out to find him, and he was on a phone call with his daughters saying goodnight, you know, in Spain. Oh, and how sweet. For, yeah, for, some, for a three Michelin star chef, like, that's not a priority a lot of the times. And um, I thought that was amazing. I also loved his the way he interacts with his his sous chefs and the way he um, the way he guides his sous chefs and his um, chef de cuisine and his management uh, into leadership roles in his kitchen is just there's nothing I had never seen anything like that before. Well, you know the whole community um, it's sort of extraordinary in, in Spain. The whole all these Basque chefs and it, it, I mean it's just One's more interesting than the other one. You know, we we would go to um, a different restaurant every night and never got bored when we were there for a couple no, of weeks. The last time we last time we were there, we had a, a rather unusual experience because we wanted to go to Arzac one one more time, but they were they were closing for the summer, and we were mm-hmm. trying to figure out how we could possibly get a reservation, how could we possibly get a reservation before they all went on vacation. And the day before, 
we still didn't have a reservation. But when but when, we, when we met Elena, I explained how helpful our secretary had been in getting us in getting us a reservation, and, and she said, "Well, there was never any question as to whether or not he'd have a reservation." <laughs> she, she just she just wanted to keep us in suspense, I guess. Well, but the <laughs> thing that made me uncomfortable was she unreserved somebody else that we could get. In. <laughs> she canceled their reservation, but we, ne- we never found out who that, we never found who that was. No. Oh, well, now we're, we're coming to your ventures into um, Thailand and Malaysia. I mean, Taipei, Japan. Now, jumping to Japan, you say you're uh, you were really influenced by the Kaiseki um, experience in Japan. That was a big culture jump, wasn't it? It was a huge culture jump. Um, you know, I was staging at Manresa at the time, and uh, this was that point in my life where I thought, I'm going to try to get into the hardest kitchens I can possibly get into. And um, I started to write to these Japanese programs, and I got a response from a program that I really admired called uh, Ryugen in Tokyo. And uh, the chef's name is Seji Yamamoto, and um, Yamamoto-san is, probably the best technical cook I've ever met in my life. He's incredible. Um, And to look back now, that was 10 years ago, uh, you know, so many people from that team, that program, have gone on to open incredible programs. Um, Ernst in Berlin, uh, you know, Dylan Watson, um, he was 17 at the time in that kitchen. Um, uh, Our friend Hida-san has a two Michelin star restaurant, um, in Taiwan, uh, another friend, Sato-san, is in Hong Kong, So, and wow. he has a two Michelin star restaurant in Hong Kong. Um, just the talent in that kitchen, you know, Koizumi-san has a restaurant called Isora in Singapore, I believe it's a, um, it had opened just a couple of years ago, but it's, you know, a beautiful, beautiful uh, modern Kaiseki restaurant. So, um, you know, spending time there, it was it was most definitely shocking. I entered the room, and I remember the first thing someone said to me was, oh, you're the Saj. Um, you're the fourth woman we've let in this kitchen. <laughs> well, see, that was something else I was going to ask you about, because I mean, they're notorious for even to go to the extremes of saying that women could not be sushi chefs because their hands were too hot. <laughs> yes. And... Um, <laughs> So, you know, that was that was very jarring for me, and I knew from the very beginning that I had a lot to prove in that kitchen. And um, the positive thing is that, you know, I really challenged myself prior to beginning that stage to really honing up on as much conversational Japanese as I possibly could. And um, I bought myself some traditional Japanese knives and began practicing using them um, at home and at work. And so those things got me... In, into the trust zone right away when it came to prep work and learning about that style of food and um, the techniques they were using at the time I had never been exposed to. So, you know, I think in, in terms of innovation, that's one of the most innovative restaurants in the world, for sure. Um, and I took a lot away from that experience as well as in 2014, um, just before reopening Manresa, I had spent a majority of the time you know, uh, being around and helping with um, the rebuilding and restructuring of the kitchen. And just before we reopened, I had a month off. And, you know, I asked David for permission to go to Japan for a month and stage again. So I spent some more time in Japan staging (laughs) Um, at a restaurant, you know, back at Ryugen and another restaurant called Ishikawa. And, um, those, you know, those moments for me uh, really have helped shape what I'm looking for in terms of expression in food and, and product and seasonality. I think um, my experiences cooking in Japan um, have really led me down this interesting path. And, well, you know, I, I find I myself kind of chasing after that today. <laughs> well, it would take a lot to lure you then um, to canvas, wouldn't it? Yes. And... Um, you were looking to open your own restaurant in Thailand, I read somewhere. 
Yeah, I was actually, um, I had secured the investors and had looked at, you know, Peruvian investors. I'm sorry. Oh, boy. Peruvian. (laughs) No, I... No, I had a, I had secured. Um, oh, it was investment. secured. Your okay. <laughs> yeah, well, and um, yeah, and I, we had also shortlisted some locations, and then COVID happened, you know, and it kind of stopped everything in the world. So yeah, um, did did, did you ever difficult. run across David Thompson in in Thailand? I met David Thompson in 2015. Um, at the 50 Best Awards, uh, I had dinner at his restaurant, and uh, he was so kind. <laughs> yeah. The one, the one in the one in Thailand. When when he was at Nam, I had yeah I had a meal at at Nam. Well, I mean, he, he has very high standards. He's, he can be very tough, but he was kind. Huh? He's a, he's a funny guy. We, we were scheduled to do to, to do the interview with him in in the evening, and Anne was too tired. So she said, "Go do it." So, so, so I traipsed down and I did. I did get in there. And David said he really loved he really loved Thailand, especially the little boys. Yes. <laughs> so I where said, is he now? Is he back? I can't remember where he is. I don't know where anybody is after this pandemic. Hmm. I know there's a lot of been there's been a lot of relocation with um, chefs kind of hopping around and. Um, I, from what I know, David has opened a restaurant called Axon in um, in Bangkok, and he's okay. got a couple other projects in the works um, in Phuket as well. So, I ran into him at the post well, office. Well, Will Goldfarb is there, isn't he? <laughs> is Will Goldfarb? Um, no, he's in Bali. Yeah, he's in Bali. He's he's really very cool. Um, cool. <laughs> I, I think so too. He, he's such a generous guy. I met him um, at Mad in Copenhagen a few years ago. Yeah. So. And then I see Magnus Nielsen is is working um, with Mad in um, at in uh, at Noma with um, in the, the yeah. Mad in the Mad Foundation. I, I'm not sure I really understand what the Mad Foundation does. That put on the Mad conferences. Sweden, we better. Unless you do a commercial for Canlis. Oh well, we need to talk about. It. I mean, I, I wanted to ask what because you have been specific about why you would move from these wonderful overseas adventures to Seattle, uh, and especially, I mean, if, if people are not familiar with Canlis, there is this kind of um, uh, upscale, fancy pants. Um, I don't want to say stayed, but tasting menu only kind of um, experience or tr- tradition, right? Is that am I correct? And I mean, we've eaten there, but not for a while. Yes, um, it's you know, it's. It like doesn't you sound earlier. like you. I was rather surprised <laughs> that, that you were. Tell me about that. Why? What lured you to this restaurant and to Seattle? And um, how do you fit into this picture? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I wasn't sure I was ready to move back to the U.S. Um, I loved my life abroad, and I loved the idea of opening a restaurant abroad. Um, when when things shifted earlier this year, uh, for me, I started kind of opening myself up to the other, you know, to other opportunities, and maybe it was in Taiwan, maybe it was in other parts of Asia, Um and uh, I had some, I had a few offers back in the U.S., and I immediately would just say no. And I got a very interesting message from Brian Canlis one day. And, um, you know, after diving into what the restaurant was about and the innovation they had shown throughout the pandemic, um, I... Oh, they, yeah, they I, just I, jumped I right on a dime. They turned on a dime and made it happen. And they didn't lose a single employee, is what they, that's what Mark told me. They, um, you know, they are incredible people. And I think from our first conversation, um, that, that, was, uh, that struck me and it made me really consider the opportunity for myself and my partner and, and what the next chapter of our lives looked like. So 
Um, well, what I great. love about yeah, what I love about what they stand for as well, is, and and a big reason for me taking this job is the um, you know there's a there's a strong um, foundation within the restaurant, and it's it's very much a people first run company. Um, yeah. You know, already in the first few months in this you know in this restaurant, I've seen them um, provide just incredible resources for their staff. Um, they are the mission statement for the restaurant is to inspire people to turn towards each other. And I think, um, you know, that's so rare to even consider in a fine dining environment. Um, and the path in which I want to kind of navigate myself towards in leadership um, brought me to go work for someone like Ineco and brought me to, you know, to this program in particular because um, of the generosity shown by this family towards their team. And, those are things that I had experienced as well in Japan. It's it's very much a team unit that's and true, how you yeah. treat your team is very much a family structure. So yeah. that's that's how it feels. It feels like a, a very big big family <laughs> in one restaurant. Um yeah, well, I'm I'm a major fan and admirer of those people and so the two. Um and now we're at the, the point of you are going to reset Canlis, can you explain some of that to us? Um, you know, what does resetting mean for, for a restaurant like Canlis? I think just being able to take the torch in this chapter of that restaurant's history, um, first of all, I'm honored to do that. And, and second of all, it's a, it's a tremendous responsibility. Um, I think when you really consider that there are not – how many 70-year-old fine dining restaurants are there in America? Right, Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, uh, not many. About maintaining uh, that caliber and you know the whole thing, and under the absolutely. conditions, the conditions. Under the I mean, conditions, you've had now not only the pandemic, you have uh, that terrible heat wave. I'm not kidding. Even envision uh, Seattle in that kind of heat situation, and then the wildfires. I mean, uh, it's a challenge. Yes, it is, and it's also you know we're existing in this kind of post. COVID space where things are always in a gray area. Um, yeah, I know. It's, yeah, it's been very challenging. And, um, you know, I think to reset Canlis, I, I don't think I'm coming in to actually reset Canlis. I think the restaurant has kind of reset the industry in a lot of ways. And, um, and the ways that they've responded in the last year is something a lot of restaurants have um, really looked up to. Um, and to be a part of the innovative side of this industry and showing innovation towards the people in the industry, um, that's a huge opportunity to learn from, you know. Um, what I hope to bring to the program is just um, a very new and progressive defined style of cooking that really leans hard on the Pacific Northwest and what it has to offer in terms of product and seasonality. Um, and, and that's, you know, I learned to cook that way from David and from James, um, from, from Aneko and Azamendi. So um, I'm hoping to really, you know, express that for, for the restaurant. And to, by doing that, it's also, you know, creating a strong connection to producers in this region. I see you're a fan of Taylor Shellfish. We we used to we used to love it when John Riley was alive, and he used to send us those oysters. Yeah, we always, we always like it when people send us a box of two dozen oysters. <laughs> Who is going to get angry at that? Um, yeah, nobody. We we subsequently had an oyster dinner with John. And, uh, oh, that was funny. We ate four dozen oysters each. And tasted wine. It was that wine challenge. Wine. He, 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 he had an event he called the uh, yeah, I can't remember oyster, what wine, the oyster wine competition. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. And that's so what I've loved so much about living here is, you know, I've been ordering from Taylor Shellfish for over 10 years, and now I get to live here. Yeah, that, <laughs> um, that's true. <laughs> wonderful product, and the people are wonderful too. So, um, yes. Well, I I think that the kitchen is a great hands with you, 
And I, <laughs> has the uh, dining public come back? I guess it's really too soon to tell. Um, yes, we are extremely busy every day. We have thousands on the wait list every day. Wow. And, um, and it's been overwhelming and exciting, and um, we've had guests, you know, already making multiple reservations as well. Uh, when people book once, you know, we have one guest who booked seven experiences at the same time. And, um, <laughs> you know, we, we've had regulars who have standing reservations at the restaurant. So it's been exciting to see the reception and just the feedback and, and people getting excited about the food and being able to get back into the canless space um, has been meaningful to so many people here. I mean, when you have a 70-year-old restaurant, um, yeah. you know, we're, we're looking at incredible celebrations of 40-year anniversaries, and we we, uh, we got engaged here three years ago, or we got married oh, yeah. here 20 years ago. Um, <laughs> so there's been a lot of a lot of that, and that's, that's really special. But can we say you're going to add a little more edge to the menu? Um, I hope so. <laughs> yeah, okay. You know, I, I, I hope that that's something that can contribute to the program. Mm-hmm. So. Well, I'm excited. Well, thank you and so much. Everybody seems to be excited about it. Now you're telling me if I, if I get there, I won't get in probably. <laughs> <laughs> well, you let me know if you're ever um, heading this way, and yeah, we'd be happy to have you in. I have a feeling the Elena Kazak phenomenon might come into effect. <laughs> <laughs> we'll find a way to get you in. Yeah. It's never. It's not going to be a question to have you in. And uh, you know, well, Mark, it's, uh, Mark has it's been a delight to meet you. you. Yeah, oh, and, absolutely. I have to uh, tell Janoka how how much fun it was talking to you. She's rather thrilled about the whole thing. So, yeah. so, you know, Jamilka and I are family friends and not just industry friends. Um, no, I didn't know best, that. Yeah, her best friend is, um, her best friend was our foreign exchange student in high school. And so that's how we met, which is so funny. <laughs> Tell me again, her, her best friend. Her best friend was our uh, foreign exchange student. Um, oh, how funny. When, when we were in high school. So we hosted her best friend, and um, that's how we got to know Jamoka. Oh, um, that's funny. I love Jamoka. I mean, she, she's, she's still not open, I don't think. I mean, at Wild Child, she's opening a restaurant called Wild Child. Yeah. I, I'd love to go and see her in Pittsburgh. You know, and well, I, if I you come here, you know you better visit us as well. Yeah, oh, we, I will. We have, we, have, we, have, we have room for several visitors. Yes. Well, thank you um, so much. I know you're busy, and I'm so glad to have a chance to talk to you. And uh, I, I hope that we see each other at some point here. I miss all I the getting-togethers of all the people in the industry. That's one of the things that we miss the most, I think. I, I, I'm excited for those things to start back up. And, you know, yeah. it was really um, a joy to get to talk to you, and thank you so much for having me. And, yeah, well... Uh, Come visit. <laughs> well, Come and see I, I hope so. I mean, I hope yeah. it's not, you know, 119 when we visit. <laughs> that to me is not Seattle. It's not how I know Seattle. But anyhow, yeah. well, thank you again and again. And um, keep in touch and much, much success in your future, I'm sure. Thank you so much, Anne. And it was a pleasure talking to you both. Thank you. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Welcome back. Next, we're going to take you to the UK, to England, and to London, actually, to talk to Katerina Carmel's whose first book is Baked to Perfection, um, which is a a treasure trove of uh, really delicious, gluten-free baked goods. Well, we weren't so sure about setting up this 
call in this interview, but um, it turned out well, and we're going to be talking to Katerina, known as Kat, um, Chermel, is that correct, Katerina? That's perfect. And talk about perfect, uh, your cookbook is called Baked to Perfection, subtitled Delicious Gluten-Free Recipes with a Pinch of Science. Well, there's more than a pinch of science. I mean, you have a degree in science from Oxford University, and I've never had any cookbook explain these reactions the way you you have in yours. (laughs) How long did it take you to research and write this book? It's the most comprehensive baking book I've ever seen. Oh, wow. Well, I'm really glad to hear that. Um, It's taken, oh, it took about a year and a half, I'd say. But honestly, I've been researching these recipes for more than five years now because a lot of the, you know, the science that went into creating this book is it's things that I've been experimenting with for the last 10 years or so. Uh, first, you know, in regular baking, so baking with uh, gluten, and then later when I developed a gluten intolerance, and then I just kind of switched ingredients. But the science, the basic science stays the same. You just need to do a couple more tweaks when it comes to gluten-free. Well, you you have formulas, you've got uh, diagrams, you've got uh, uh, photos and drawings, um, and First of all, the photos, by the way, are delicious. I mean, everybody's going to be hooked just from looking at the pictures. Oh, thank you. Gooey, oh, well, everything. But um, so, like, who are you trying to reach? I have to say that um, I believe you because you're so, so thorough and you say you're a perfectionist. And from looking at these recipes, I believe that. Uh, but but I, I must say that, most gluten-free things I've tasted tasted like cardboard, which is what you mentioned. Everybody says. I know, but I think it's it's a huge misconception, and it's been insane that I've had so many people who don't have to eat gluten-free that have told me they've tried my recipes, they've gone out, they bought gluten-free flour, and they end up realizing that they actually prefer gluten-free baking to regular baking with wheat flour. They've noticed that the cakes are more tender, the cookies more crumbly or gooey. So, you know, that misconception about gluten-free bakes being like cardboard, it couldn't be more wrong. Well, let's say most of the commercial gluten-free cookies and crackers and whatnot. I think this tastes like cardboard. But but you don't do that. No, definitely not. Well, tell us, I mean, you have a mission with this book. Um, Mainly, you want people to actually understand uh, what what gluten is about and and understand how you can cook gluten-free and then let them go on their own and, and, and uh, do whatever they want. So how about telling us, to start with, what exactly is gluten? Well, gluten is basically two groups of proteins, uh, which you can find in wheat flour, but also in some other flours, but mainly wheat, so that's you know, the one that we usually associate with gluten. And basically when those proteins come into contact with water, uh, gluten is created in and gluten is what gives you know bread and dough it's their stretchness and elasticity so you know how um, every bread recipe will tell you needed to develop to develop gluten to get that supple stretchness of you know bread dough or anything like that so gluten is really what binds the bakes together, what gives them elasticity, and also prevents them from being too dry or too crumbly. So with gluten-free baking, you obviously have to think about how to compensate for the lack of gluten because obviously, you know, when you take away something that holds bakes together, it's very very easy for them to end up being too dry or too crumbly. Um, So, yeah, that's what gluten is. So, so bakers, essentially bakers love gluten because it gives them the effect that they're looking for. Uh, I'd say yes and no. I'd say yes and no. So I found that 
gluten can be both obviously a huge plus when it comes to bread and where we want that elasticity to happen, where you need that stretchiness, that chewiness. But on the other hand, when you make something like cakes that need to be tender or cookies that need to have a snap or, you know, a flaky pie crust that needs to be very tender, their gluten can actually be an enemy, so to speak, because you need to prevent it from developing too much because otherwise you end up with everything being too rubbery. It, it, it's an enemy as well because it has, I guess, it has an unfortunate set of side effects that, that people complain of when when they get gluten and that's why many people avoid gluten because they don't want those effects oh yes definitely i mean you have quite i mean the the number of people with gluten intolerances and gluten allergies it's definitely on the rise but now why is that i mean our ancestors way back in the stone age um used um gluten um flour I mean, gluten-free um, flour is a new thing, isn't it? Um, I'd say yes and no. Um, so I wouldn't say it's necessarily a new flour. If you consider that many, for instance, uh, Asian cultures have used rice flour uh, for centuries. Um, but I think, so from what I've read, the rise of the gluten intolerances and allergies can be attributed also to this new new um, wheat varieties that are right. engineered to be more resistant to all sorts of disease that would reduce the crop. Um, and actually, in the nature, so for the plants themselves, gluten also acts um, as a kind of protective protein that you know prevents them from succumbing to all sorts of disease and from being attacked by you know insects, etc. So for plants, gluten is and related proteins and substances are actually a kind of defense mechanism. And mm -hmm. I'm not, you know, a, a um, you know, I don't know a lot about the mechanism of gluten, how exactly it um, reacts in the body and how exactly it leads to um, the, all these allergies and tolerances, but I'm sure there's, you know, a relationship or, you know, between this um, plant defense mechanism and how it reacts in the body. And why is it not just fine or okay in solving the problem to just use one of the flowers that are listed as gluten-free? Um, that's because for gluten-free flowers, are a huge group of flowers and they have a very, very different properties. So you have things like potato starch or corn starch that are, as the name suggests, very starchy, very dry. And these have completely different properties from things like buckwheat flour or sorghum flour that are, let's say, give a heavier crumb but also carry more flavor and give a very small amount of elasticity. So you have these huge differences between different gluten-free flours, and you really get the very best results when you mix them together to tailor the flour profile of your mix or blend that you're using. And um, especially when it comes to gluten-free bread, there the flour profile is incredibly important because the way you mix those flours together can make the difference between something that's more like an artisanal German-style bread that's quite heavy and dense, or on the other hand, if you increase the starch content, you can have something like focaccia that, is, that has a very open crumb with those lovely bubbles. So it's very, very important which um, gluten-free flours you use and in one proportion. Now, I, 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 you admit that you're not claiming that this is a health recipes. <laughs> which is what a lot of the gluten-free stuff turns out to be. But um, how much weight did you gain when doing this book? <laughs> I mean, not that much. I tried to, you know, I, I believe. Well, you, I experimented, you experimented with all these recipes multiple, multiple times. I can't remember I, the one you told me about the wrote about the cupcakes. How many, how many um, uh, iterations the the recipe went through, and you had to sample <laughs> all of this. Or, no, that was the, the uh, chocolate chip cookies, maybe. I don't remember now. I think it was cupcakes, but 
<laughs> but um, we're not saying that this is just healthful stuff. It's um, singular indulgences, right? I mean, yes. I mean, you obviously have things like bread and, you know, um, I don't know, pizza or, you know, you have also things that are kind of more savory things that kind of part of, you know, an everyday bread you obviously eat every day, but there are many things that are very much, you know, okay for occasions, for indulgences. Um, but I also believe in moderation, and I think, you know, why not have something, something, you know, a piece of a brownie or, I don't know, a piece of chocolate just on a random Wednesday? I mean, I think desserts and enjoying food is very much should be a part of everyday life. And that's what I wanted to achieve with this book, you know, make help people that, you know, might have been deprived of enjoying their food um, because of, you know, gluten intolerances or anything like that, help them enjoy food again because I think it's just such an integral part of our lives and it would be a shame to lose that. Yeah, I like your little, you have so many tricks and hints in this book and a a great sense of humor. I mean, uh, even though you're, you're, um, it's really a comprehensive book filled with all kinds of of details that most people not, you know, don't know anything about it, scientific details. But then you have some really clever uh, things, such as your three um, toothpicks, the graphic. I like oh, those. Yes. Tell us about Thank that. Thank you. Um, well, I'm very much a visual learner. So when I did my uh, undergraduate studies of chemistry, all my notes were almost always had some small doodles at their sides. Just so, because I find images convey sometimes so much more, and it's easier to transmit information in picture form or illustration form. Um, plus, I knew that my book would be very information dense, and illustrations are a nice way of breaking up those huge blocks of text. So that's why I really wanted to include some illustrations, um, and it also allowed me to um, just get illustrating and drawing again because I used to love drawing but it kind of fell to the wayside and yeah I just loved illustrating the book and I hope that you know people these illustrations will help people perhaps understand the science a bit more and also find it more approachable because I know that maths and science and chemistry can scare people so I really hope that um, the illustrations will present it in a more fun way. <laughs> no, uh, chemistry is probably my least favorite subject. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> but um, but I mean, you really are into these uh, sweets, uh, in a in, and also in the savories, in a very intense way. I mean, it, you get really passionate in your writing about the the different things. And, and you, I mean, you don't overlook anything. There's, I mean, you, you have uh, how to scale a cake, uh, you have the colors of the pan, um, the, um, the portions, proportions of, of you know, um, water to, um, to the dry ingredient. I mean, it's really d- detailed. <laughs> I mean, I'm, as you mentioned, I'm a perfectionist, and I know my brain just works in terms of Excel tables and numbers and ratios. And I think that it's useful to think in those terms, especially if people want to take the recipes in the book and adapt them further, um, because I don't find it very useful to say, um, I don't know, this recipe requires three eggs and 500 grams of flour, I find it more useful to look at the ratio of eggs to flour because then if you go on and change something or increase or, I don't know, go from a two-layer to three-layer cake, you those ratios stay the same. Uh-huh. So I I just find it, you get so much more information out of a recipe if you look at ratios and rather than just individual ingredients. I mean, um, for instance, if you just look at regular bread recipes in, in from any sort of professional baker, you will always find these uh, baker's percentages, which are basically expressing each ingredient as a percentage of the flour weight. So 
basically, for instance, if you have 100 grams of flour and 100 grams of water, that's 100% baker's percentage of water. Um, and that makes it super easy to compare recipes, which is what I also wanted to achieve in my book, so that people, when they go from one gluten-free bread recipe to another, they can see what are the crucial changes that, you know, make focaccia focaccia and a baguette a baguette. So you can see what's the difference in the starch content, what's the difference in the hydration percentage. And I think, I hope, I hope rather than I think, um, that you know, people will gain not just good recipes, but also the knowledge about what makes those recipes good. Right. Now, the, um, of course, Peter grew up in the north of England, and his whole family are sweet nuts. They really sweet nuts. <laughs> he is a cousin that went to dessert camp. <laughs> so, but anyhow, he he loves recognizing your photography is so good. Um, recognizing certain kinds of like a Swiss roll, which I had never even heard of, but he that's part of his childhood memory. Well, and there was a special oh, Swiss lovely. roll that was cooked at Christmas time, which had, which had icing all over it. Oh, yes, like a U-log. Yeah, exactly, exactly. A U-log. Yeah. Oh, a U-log. Okay, yeah. I know yeah. what a U-log is. Yeah. Whereas your standard uh, Swiss roll has jam in, rolled into it, right? Yes, that's did, right, yes. I, I never did really care for that. Yeah. But you you always love these, um, we called them something different, chocolate lava cakes. But they're, they're something, aren't they? That's intense. Oh, yes, with the molten center. Oh, yeah. We called them something different. I can't remember what we called them. But uh, Peter always loved that. Well, my, my, cousin Mike, my cousin Michael used to make a dessert called Bomb Alaska. But it wasn't, oh, yeah. it wasn't a bread. It wasn't a bread dessert. It was an ice cream dessert. Mm-hmm. Oh yes, yes, with the meringue on top, and yes, that's lovely. Exactly. It's it's so it's so funny because because Michael is a is a, is a professional engineer, not the kind of person at all you would imagine would be making dessert. <laughs> <laughs> His wife is the one that went to dessert camp. <laughs> yeah, whereas, whereas his wife Winifred. Went to dessert camp and and uh, maybe Kat could do an English branch of pie camp. Huh? <laughs> you should do that. Yeah. Um, I've actually found so it's interesting. I found that a lot, many many scientists actually are quite brilliant bakers, which you wouldn't necessarily expect um, because baking is often you know cake decorating. You often associate that, that with more creative people, but actually science and baking goes amazingly well together. Oh, I think so. Yes. Yeah. You have to get you have to get the, everything just precisely correct, right? What's the name of that lady in San Francisco? Emily Lucchetti, love. When where, honey? She was in San Francisco. She she was one of the leaders of your women chefs and restaurateurs business. Emily Lucchetti. Oh, Emily Lucchetti. Yeah. And she stressed the importance of precision. Yeah. So, um, although you know, like. We have um, a number of people we've interviewed um, who are pie bakers, um, especially in the Pacific Northwest, and um, uh, that's the reference to the pie camp because that's a real thing. You go and you learn to make. And she, her house, she calls the pie cottage, and it looks oh, like. Oh, that's absolutely brilliant. <laughs> yeah. Well, now she's actually with the. Uh, pandemic she's online so she's reaching people's kitchens in indonesia and all over the world <laughs> now back yeah, to your I book think... you yeah go ahead no i, I was just go, uh, going to say that um on the one hand i think through the pandemic people have by going online people have reached so many people across the world across countries which was just amazing to see oh yes so um, you, you 
say that you had a lot of trouble with cupcakes and muffins, but then you finally resolved the issue. And you do a lot of doodling around with those too. Yes, so my my cupcakes and muffin troubles were going on for quite a few years. For whatever reason, whenever I went to make cupcakes, they end up looking just like huge muffins and vice versa. So it took me... <laughs> Basically, reverse engineering a few successful cupcake and muffin recipes from other bakers and bloggers uh, to, and again, looking at the ratios and the different ingredients, just to pinpoint the crucial points that make, you know, a cupcake a cupcake and a muffin a muffin. Um, But I have to say, I actually like those challenges. So, for instance, I was um, I, a few, just maybe a few weeks ago, started working on gluten-free uh, uh, phyllo dough, which everybody thought would be impossible because obviously phyllo pastry is infinitely thin. Um, but I actually managed to pull it off, and it's those kind of really challenging recipes that I think I enjoy developing most. I just love a good challenge, really. Yeah, well, you, you certainly have... Uh, I mean, the whole section of bread, the idea of gluten-free bread <laughs> blows my mind. But you have all kinds of breads in here. Oh, yeah. There, I think there are over 15 different gluten-free bread recipes, and that's definitely the chapter I'm most proud of. Um, oh, because it's impressive. I'm, Very thank impressive. You. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. So, and tell us a little bit about how your experiments with making bread without gluten. I mean, it's just amazing to me. I mean, my first experiments were basically like stodgy bricks. They were absolutely (laughs) awful, but I mean, I had to start somewhere. I think the biggest breakthrough was discovering um, something called psyllium husk, uh, which is just a magical ingredient in gluten-free bread baking because so there are basically two binders that people use in gluten-free bread baking. One is xanthan gum, which is yeah. fairly well known, yeah. and it works really well in things like cakes, pastry, cookies, etc. But with gluten-free bread, it didn't quite produce the very good results. Uh, but then I discovered psyllium husk, which is a different binder, and it completely transforms gluten-free bread. So Oftentimes, you know, you see these gluten-free bread recipes where you have to pour batter into a loaf tin. So it's more like a cake that's called a bread, whereas with psyllium husk, you can get gluten-free bread dough that you can actually knead and shape. And once I discovered that and how it behaves, it was just a huge breakthrough. And after that, it was pretty smooth sailing. Now tell me again what this ingredient is. Psyllium, P-S-Y-L-L-I-U-M, husk. I never even heard of it. I know. Many people haven't, and then they try it out, and their minds are just blown because it's, as I said, a magical ingredient. But the way you use it is actually quite odd because you mix it into water and it makes this kind of sticky, gloopy gel. so it absorbs, it actually back, uh, acts by absorbing a lot of water and forming a gel which has elastic and kind of sticky properties. And that's what then gives the bread and the dough it, their elasticity. And it also allows the bread, the gluten-free bread to proof nicely and, you know, you can shape it and you can do pretty much, well, almost everything you could do, um, you can do with wheat bread, you can do with gluten-free bread so long as you use psyllium husk. Now, I, one thing I did not quite understand is in your bread section, um, you have, of course, getting the proper doneness in all baked goods is important, but you have this um, this diagram or drawing which shows that you can use an, an internal temperature, but for it, more importantly, you can actually determine the doneness by weighing the loaf. Could you explain what that's about? Yes, so that's that's slightly unusual. So usually when you when you bake regular breads with wheat flour, you determine whether it's done by basically looking at its color and then you turn 
it's probably baked. If you go a step further, you take its temperature. But I discovered through many, many loaves of bread that those methods weren't, weren't very reliable. So even when my loaves passed all those tests, sometimes I cut into it, and it was very sticky, almost like it didn't lose enough water. So it turns out that gluten-free flours and also psyllium husk, they really like to hold on to their water. So even if, you know, your bread reaches the correct temperature, etc., if it didn't lose enough moisture, it will still end up sticking inside. Um, so that's why, it's, why I found the best way to determine whether your gluten-free bread is baked or not is actually by weighing it. Because by weighing it, you determine how much moisture it's lost. And um, in my book, I give approximate final weights and approximate um, percentages of weight loss. And if people follow that, um, and you know, they weigh their baked bread and see that it's reached the correct weight, then they will know that it's lost enough moisture. So when they cut into it, they should, you know, they get the perfect bread texture, no stickiness, no gumminess, nothing like that. You see, our, our grandmothers would just knock on the bottom of a loaf of bread and determine how hollow it sounded. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, it turns out it doesn't work that way. <laughs> it would be nice, though. Now, we're moving right on here. I don't want to miss out on, on this last section because you have a little story that goes with this. Um, of your book is like Around the World, it's called. And tell yes. us what that is and how you actually got to that point and included all these things. <laughs> So this chapter actually came about because I, ha I developed this really amazing recipe for gluten-free shoe pastry. Um, Which is and a marvel in itself. I, I mean, I couldn't even believe that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it seemed impossible, but... I mean, it, it behaves basically right, like regular shoe pastry. You can get these amazing eclairs, shoe buns, anything you would want, you can make it uh, with that. Um, so I have this recipe, but it didn't really fit in any of the chapters. So that's basically the reason why the Around the World chapter happened is so that I could include the shoe pastry recipe somewhere. But, I mean, in the end... I, so after the bread chapter, that's one of my favorites because it has some really amazing recipes in there, like the milfoil recipe or the tiramisu. I mean, it, yeah, I was it has some winners. Tiramisu, yeah. yeah. You have opera cake. <laughs> that's impressive, too. Thank and you, you. have Melafieu. I mean, I, that, I couldn't imagine. You'd, it's amazing. The pictures are amazing for that. Yeah, thank you. I mean, I, I'm still very, very happy with my um, rough puff pastry recipe because, again, puff pastry is something that, you know, seems difficult to do with gluten-free, um, but it, it, it turns out it's actually quite easy. Um, and I think that's true for most of the recipes in the book. You think they're hard and difficult and possible to do, but once you take them step by step, they're not that difficult at all. Well, I think that you should be proud of this whole book. It's certainly an accomplishment. And um, uh, as you said, the, the number of people who are looking for gluten-free um, cooking and baking, and this is the perfect answer to it. I mean, you even have what you call it proper boiled and baked bagels, which is <laughs> <laughs> New Yorkers would probably question that. But <laughs> And pizza, you mentioned you had pizza and um, uh, flatbreads. Just, yeah, you really have done an incredible job. And donuts, listeners, can you imagine gluten-free donuts? <laughs> well, <laughs> congratulations on this wonderful book, um, Kat. Thank I mean, you very is, much. It's, it's going to become a classic, I think. I see a bread well, camp hopefully. in the somewhere. What is it, Robert? I see a bread camp in, in <laughs> bread camp. <laughs> Gluten-free bread camp. I mean, why not? Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, there you go. See, you have something new to do. You can do it <laughs> online. Well, thank you for taking the time to talk to us, Kat. And um, as I wish you success with this book, I keep 
being arrested by the the um I don't have a sweet tooth, and, uh, but these are so appetizing in the photographs. <laughs> I, just, I, I just keep flipping from one page to the next, and one thing, and, and the thing that I really want more than anything is your blackberry pie. <laughs> well, thank you very much for having me on. Well, it was a delight. I'm glad that we managed to figure it out. So take care, and, uh, and I'm, I'm hoping that you follow this up with another book and we get to chat again in the near future. <laughs> will do. Well, I, will let, I will definitely let you know when the next book comes around. Great.